Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back to Connecting the Dots on TNT for our third hour. As I promised, we have a great guest, somebody who is, uh, I've, I've now been, uh, he's been on my radar now for about eight, nine months, um, read through his book, got to know him. He Richard Cook. Richard Cook is somebody who has impressed me quite a bit in his method of analyzing history and seeing the connection of the past to the present with a look to the future. And that's always the key. Uh, I think a lot of a lot of historians, I, they frustrate me because they tend to compartmentalize their minds in unnecessary ways. They treat the past as if it's like something disconnected because it's so far removed, right? Many people, generations have died in between our lives today and what Benjamin Franklin was doing, Washington, Hamilton, other, other people were doing 250 years ago. What does that mean? Whereas when I was reading through your writings, you don't have those problems. And you also understand that we are living in history. That's so, And that context is everything, that the future is going to look back and learn from us. Are, were, we, were we tragic? Did we, did we give into mediocrity and stupidity? Did we become better people when we needed to be? We don't know because a lot of this is subjective, right? It's it's depending on our decisions. So, Richard Cook, thank you so much for joining us. I'd like to talk to you today about a little bit of your book, a little bit of your thesis, your method of thinking, and also your new your new think tank. Right. Good. Glad to be here. Thank you. Cool. So, first of all, um, let's start with our country then and now. Let's let's do that because this is a book that people should read. They should have this on their bookshelf. It's a good resource. Um, like I said, it's a healthy ap- approach to history. That doesn't make the mistake of either just treating America's past as being all crap and hypocrisy and empire and evil and destru- destruction, right. although you don't ignore those things and right. you don't you don't just treat it like a giant fluff piece saying everything America did was great, where, right. you know, and just ignore all the evil. So you're able to, to do what not many people I noticed do well, and you were able to navigate through that middle ground and see that, OK, there's something really beautiful, but there's also certain really bad things as well that we should also right. be aware of because if we're not we won't understand today's deep state and what's what's right. causing america to self-destruct so what right. what went into your mind going into this like what what is your what do you want as a takeaway from people um who've studied your book well for, first of all uh i'm a resident and a citizen of the united states mm. uh i spent 32 years working for the federal government I worked for five different agencies, including the uh, Carter White House. Uh, I worked at NASA when Challenger blew up. And uh, I just happened by coincidence to have a batch of papers that showed why that happened, that I leaked to the newspapers. So I went through all that whistleblower thing. And then I spent over 20 years kind of hiding out in the U.S. Treasury Department. And I tell you, that was an education. I ended up actually developing and teaching training courses on the history of the U.S. monetary system. And that took me back to colonial days, to Indian wampum, to Spanish dollars, all the way through the the 19th century and all of the controversies there, including Lincoln's issuance of the greenbacks, which he called a true people's currency, which was perhaps the last a big episode in the attempt to develop a people's currency 
to serve the growing United States. Then we had the Federal Reserve System that came in uh, in 1913. And increasingly, I'm re referring to that event uh, as the insurrection of 1913, when a very mm. alien system was brought into the United States, uh, a central banking system based upon uh, fractional reserve banking, which needs some explanation for a lot of people, mm -hmm. and the practice of usury, that is the uh, use of interest uh, on lending by a private enterprise authorized to create money out of thin air that mainly ends up in their own pockets. Uh, and that's been the system under which we have been operating ever since then. And uh, in the second half of my book, the first half, I kind of do the, uh, the history leading up to that. The second half is the consequences of that. Endless warfare, endless cycles of uh, asset inflation followed by recession or depression, uh, corruption of every aspect of the political and economic system, uh, endless wars uh, to keep the rest of the world uh, under the thumb of the money uh, power, and uh, then the creation of what we've all learned to call the deep state, which is mm -hmm. kind of the behind-the-scenes operators in charge of color revolutions, uh, in charge of regime change. Uh, and we see that very active today in both uh, Europe and the, uh, and the Middle East. So anyway, I just try to tie all of these things together. But uh, as you said, uh, history is, is alive in all of us today. And as you were talking, Matt, I realized that since my first European ancestors came to America, which was in the year 1638, and that doesn't count my Native American ancestors who entered the family through my French-Canadian grandfather and his family, uh, that's only 14 generations. Now, it seems like a long time, but think of that. 14 people is not a whole lot of people. And everything that we are looking at today, uh, at least in, in my own case, uh, came through the hands and lives of 14 generations of people. Uh, the past is not that far behind us. Uh, and it's living in us all today. And uh, I'm very closely in touch, for example, with the Native Americans in Montana. I was born in Montana, actually, near the Flathead Indian Reservation. And my grandfather worked for the Forest Service out there. My mom grew up in the woods of uh, Montana and became a nurse. Uh, and, and all of that history is, is very alive today. And, and we're seeing tragedies today out there. We're seeing the infiltration of Montana, and particularly the seven uh, great Indian reservations by drug gangs from Mexico who are creating havoc uh, among the indigenous people uh, of my home uh, state. And also, I'm sure, up in Canada as well. So all of that is kind of rolling down the pike at us uh, and we have to face up to these things and deal with the problems that the past has left us with. And, and so that's kind of what I'm trying to do.
And this this brings us into the new um, the new think tank that you uh, created, the new institute, uh, what's called the American Geopolitical Institute, which uh, is brand new. I think you set this thing up maybe a week and a half ago or something like that. Right. Um, I know I, I was very impressed by your general mandate when I looked at the uh, the press release, uh, right. the issue of of breaking up the crime syndicates that have really right. infiltrated and taken control of so many of the Native American uh reservations including in canada i mean this is a thing um where does this come from so my first question would be basically you just brought this up i was always curious was this because this is something i've I've always known and i only know the canadian experience of the reserves it's kind of an unspoken thing that um everyone knows mafia does huge business there you know Mm -hmm. a lot of money laundering drugs all sorts of things Right. A lot of these reserves, especially on the, the Canada-U.S. border, very, yeah. very useful um, for those who who don't let, you know, who, who need this. You know, anyway, um, was this baked into the construction of the reserves uh, from the get-go, or is this something that was brought in over time um, as far as using them to keep the natives in a state of underdevelopment? and 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 keep their their territory used for corruption's sake how like how do we understand that and how do we do something about that i it's a big problem yeah it's a very complex uh history to that and i think the people who read uh my book i write about the general history of the indian uh uh way of life uh going back to really uh ancient history when before before uh, the Europeans came and traced that uh, until today, but I do it primarily through uh, a study of the Flathead Indian tribes uh, in western Montana. Uh, this is a place, the Flathead Reservation is a place that my mom and dad went to when they were kids growing up. It was a part of the culture out there, and I made several trips to Montana in the last uh, three years to meet with people, interview people, get to know the history. And uh, uh, basically, uh, when America, went, well, America, uh, the United States uh, took over uh, the Oregon country in 1855, when they made the treaty with Great Britain that you know drew the line between Canada and the United States, uh, the United States set up uh, what they call the Washington Territory. Mm-hmm. And that included Western Montana up to the Continental Divide. And a guy named uh, General Stevens was tasked by Washington to go into uh, the Washington Territory and to put all of the Native American tribes onto reservations. And they did that uh, in Montana, in Western Montana. Uh, by signing what they call the Hellgate Treaty. Approximately now, what year was this, uh, thereabouts? 18, about 1855. Okay. I think the treaty was 1853. Uh, the Hellgate Treaty was signed just two years later in 1855. And Hellgate is an actual geological location just outside the city of Missoula, where I was born where the Clark Fork River comes down from the Continental Divide through a canyon out into the Columbia River Basin, where, where uh, uh, all the rivers from western Mon- Montana flow into. 
So they created a reservation there, which they called the Flathead Reservation, which was the generic name for the Indian tribes of that area. And it consisted of two parts. The northern part, which is today's Flathead Reservation, is 12 and a half million acres. Now that's a big piece of land. Uh, that's bigger, for example, than the state of Delaware. Mm. Uh, the southern half was in the Flathead River Valley, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, the Bitterroot River Valley. And uh, the provision there was that over time, the Indians in that area would migrate north to the Flathead Indian Reservation. And, and that's actually what happened. But uh, in the Flathead Reservation, where about half a dozen different tribes were, were located, they actually had a pretty good life uh, after the signing of the treaty because they had hunting rights uh, on and off the reservation. They had a lot of land for grazing their cattle and their chiefs had a lot of wisdom and they made a decision. We will not fight the U.S. government and engage in warfare against the U.S. Army. We will accept what we're given and move on from, from there. And that's the way they've lived ever since then. And compared to a lot of other Indian tribes, particularly in the West, they're doing pretty well. Uh, they've established businesses, industries, but what happened was that uh, in the late 1800s, the federal government decided we're gonna get rid of the reservations. This is too good a deal for the Indians. And it's time for us to incorporate the Indians completely into white society and assimilate them into white culture. That's when they started sending kids out to the uh, Indian schools in places like Carlisle, uh, uh, Pennsylvania, was to get rid of their Indianness and turn mm. them into white people. Mm. That was also the philosophy under which the allotment policy uh, came into being. And under the allotment policy, the reservations, and there were, this happened in a lot of different places, including Oklahoma, where they had the land rushes, open the land to white settlement. And so they actually uh, had lotteries where white people could move onto the reservation and take the land that had been set aside for the Indians. This began in Montana, in Western Montana, in 1910. And immediately, the Indians began to decline into poverty because they could no longer uh, raise their cattle and horses on open range. Uh, hunting was restricted because the whites and their farms drove away the animals that they hunted right. because they were still hunting moose, uh, antelope, deer. Uh, it was a tragedy for the Indians. And I document that in my book in, in great detail uh, uh, for the Flathead tribes. This went on for a quarter century. Then when Roosevelt was elected president, he had a commissioner of Indian affairs who actually said the old Indian way of life in its morality, in its ethics, in its relationship to the earth was superior to the white way of life. Wow. And so... They created a new system of tribal government, uh, tribal councils, where the Indians themselves gradually began to take over administration of their land. 
And what we have out there today is this system of government that was set up in 1934 under the Indian Reorganization Act, where the Indian tribal councils themselves ran the Indian governments. And everything we have today on these reservations stems from that, uh, including an Indian police system where they have the right and the responsibility to police their own land, their own societies. Uh, they have an Indian court system, but uh, uh, when half the population or more living on the reservation are white people who have allegiance to the county government and the state government, you've got uh, a recipe for trouble. And so all of this has never been really sorted out in these reservations. So anyway, that's just kind of an overview. Of no, that, where we that's are. good because that creates the 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 the, so, the the I guess the fertile soil for the later uh, implanting of these different points of corruption. Uh, so without this context, without this history, one couldn't possibly address the question that I wanted to address, which is like, how did all of these international mafia, drime syndicate, cartels end up Albanian mafia and Mexican mafia and all these things? So this helps. This helps immensely. I'm not going to belabor you yeah. with more details, well, but this is very vital. One, one, last, one last point that's, that's in yeah. the news today. Uh, the Indian tribes, uh, I mean, to, to, to staff and train and support in, the, in a court system a adequate police presence to keep the drug cartels out of the reservations, they don't have the resources. Yeah. And the state of Montana and the county governments say they don't have the resources and so they just stay out of the way while the drug gangs come in and corrupt the indian reservations and so that's kind of the rest of the story of course yeah you keep somebody in a state of want and of course of course you're going to increase the chances that they will become corrupt or take bribes or whatever else of right. course because you're not there's no abundance there's no opportunity so of course it makes sense that's yeah. the case of ukraine or anybody who's been through uh, the imf uh, breakdown. Um, on this on this note, let's go for a quick commercial break. We're going to come right back with uh, today's news talk TNT. TNT's Mark Morano. Breaking news: Climate punks trash the U.S. Constitution at the National Archive Rotunda in Washington D.C. We are determined to foment a rebellion. We will not be held accountable to laws in which we have no voice or representation. The entire U.S. archive was evacuated because of this stunt. And did you notice our men in blue and women in blue stood around and enabled these protesters to not only deface the case of the of the where the U.S. Constitution was held, but also to quiet the crowd, it seemed like, and just allow them to speak. It's almost as if, hey, they have the floor, everyone. Let's be quiet. We have some. Uh, we have some uh, vandals here that want to speak. Let's give them our due respect that they've deserved, that they've earned. Mark Morano on today's News Talk TNT. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought, something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widowmaker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. <laughs> 
Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. The human mind is like a computer, no matter how efficient it may be. Its reliability is only as great as the information fed into it. That's a campaign promise. Tell us the truth. Tell us the truth. We mandate that the truth be told. You're hearing it. TNT. All right, welcome back for the second segment of the third hour on Connecting the Dots. I'm here joined by Richard Cook, founder of American Geopolitical Institute, author of Our Country Then and Now, which uh, people should buy. Google it on Amazon. Get it wherever you can. Just get it. Um, Richard, I I have a a question. So you had brought up in our previous segment um, your support for the greenback system of Lincoln. Right. Which... And I've looked at your your geopolitical institute. Your one of your mandates um, is to restore a national bank, break up monopolies for these. But but you're also against the Federal Reserve. Now a lot of people I encounter would say, oh, but the Federal Reserve is a national bank. That that right. what do we? How how? Obviously, I know that that's that's a misguided opinion, but it's common. It's it's out there. So how do you respond? What is the difference between the the Federal Reserve? And a real national bank, the type of which a, a Lincoln was was fighting to bring online. What's the difference between the two or that you're fighting to bring online? Well, I'll try to be succinct with this because uh, books have been written about it, uh, including my book, where I really go into great detail about where the Federal Reserve came from and what it became. But basically, uh, uh, the Federal Reserve system was created by what we call the money trust. And that was the big private bankers who had uh, pretty much taken over the American economy by the late uh, 1900s, uh, late 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, The big name in all this was JP Morgan. Uh, and uh, it's useful to think of Morgan as kind of the focal point of this, but Morgan was very closely allied, in fact, so was his father, with the private uh, bankers of England and of Europe, mainly France and Germany. And the big name in private banking in uh, Europe, of course, was the Rothschild uh, family. And it was the Rothschilds who were the European partners of J.P. Morgan and the Money Trust. And the private banking system under Morgan had become so powerful that by the early 1900s, it was the actual owner of much of American industry, including the steel industry, because it was Morgan who came in and essentially bought out Carnegie and uh, became the de facto owner of U.S. Steel and then the owner of the Steel Trust that included all of the other subsidiaries. Okay, Mm -hmm. so that was one half the money trust. The other half was the Rockefellers. And the Rockefellers had been financed, John D. Rockefeller had been financed in his creation of Standard Oil by by the Rothschild banking interests. So you had the Rothschilds at work on both sides of the track. Uh, with the money that Rockefeller made in uh, oil, he created his own series of banks. 
which became uh, eventually uh, Citibank, uh, Chase Bank, and those kind of things. And today we see how all that came together because the most powerful bank in the world is the union of the two aspects, the, the two parts of the money trust, J.P. Morgan uh, Chase. Uh, all of that is a result of uh, the takeover of the banking system by the money trust in the early 1900s. The Federal Reserve is owned by J.P. Morgan Chase. They are the literal owners of record of the banking system that is run out of the uh, Federal Reserve Bank of New York. They appoint the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. That's the bank that sets the uniform interest rate that affects all banking throughout the U.S. and throughout much of the rest of the world. The United States government has absolutely no say mm. in the setting of that interest rate. That there was, is there's a, a, a video of, J, of uh, Alan Greenspan um, in the early 90s describing how the Federal Reserve uh, is outside of the authority of the federal government when they want to make yeah. their decisions. So that, that was the chairman of the Federal Reserve. It's not just you saying that. That's actually the chairman of the Federal Reserve just openly saying we make decisions that are unaccountable by the elected aspects of all government. Sorry, I just had to throw that in there. Right. Exactly. And they brag about it. Say, oh, we're free of politics. Well, they're free of the control uh, of the elected representatives of the American people. And that's mm -hmm. not what the U.S. Constitution says. The U.S. Constitution says that Congress has the authority to coin money and regulate the value thereof. And that translates all the way down through oversight of the banking system, which even after Lincoln created the greenbacks, we still had a national banking system set up, but it was overseen and supervised by the federal government. Mm -hmm. And one of the features of that system was a bank in any location, and there were at that time thousands of banks that had been set up, could set its own interest rates based upon local conditions. That prerogative of a bank to set interest rates depending on local conditions was taken away by the Federal Reserve legislation and put mm -hmm. in the hands of the Federal Reserve System, and specifically the Federal Reserve Bank uh, of New York, because that's where the win they call it the window for open market operations is. That's where the whole banking system gets its reserve uh, credits from. And that's what Alan Greenspan was talking about. That institution is literally the property of the Wall Street banks plus some European banks including the Rothschild banks coming out of England and France. So that's what we mean by a, uh, a privately owned and operated banking system. And they can lend money for anything. They could lend money for derivative uh, 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 speculation. Mm -hmm. They can lend money for leveraged buyouts where a bunch of vulture capitalists come in, buy a company, strip it of assets, and may bankrupt it, but they do that on borrowed money. That's why it's called leveraged buyouts. They borrow mm -hmm. money from the Federal Reserve System in order to come in and destroy companies. That's why 
Toys R Us doesn't exist anymore because the vulture capitalists borrowed so much money that uh, Toys R Us went bankrupt. And, and, and that story has been repeated uh, constantly throughout the last uh, a half century. So anyway, that's just kind of a thumbnail sketch of where we are with this. I got, I got a quick follow-up. There's a, f- a few questions popped into my mind as you were, as you were speaking, but as a, as a quick point of clarification, um, I get how if you are, let's say, a vulture fund, or let's say you, you want to make money off of the destruction of some productive enterprise, so you, you could, you could uh, short sell, so you, you could sell short on the stock, presume that they're going to go down, and then that kind of becomes a Pygmalion effect, like a manifest right. destiny, because enough people do that, selling right. short, and all of a sudden, that means like this you're going to cause the, the stock to tank, but you're going to make right. money because you you knew right. you knew it was going to happen. Uh, we've seen George Soros and, and his ilk doing stuff like that. Um, so you incentivize the breakdown of the real economy, of real businesses. Right. But what you just said is, it, does that overlap? Or are, I have a difficult time seeing how these vulture funds that would get capital as a loan from the Fed or whatever to buy up a, a pr- otherwise productive or useful enterprise how right. do they then make money off of having destroyed and stripped down that company? Where, where does that, where's that? They, 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 uh, they don't go directly to the federal reserve. They'll go to JP Morgan chase oh, yeah. or, uh, whatever bank they're big bank investment bank they're dealing with. Uh, they sell the assets. Uh, they sell oh, the factories. Uh, they sell the inventory, I uh, and uh, that—that's how it's done. The, the asset—it's called stripping of assets. Uh, gotcha. They then—they then are authorized to leave the debt they incur to do this with the company they're destroying, and that's what happened to Toys R Us. Uh, and then the company goes bankrupt, and when a company goes bankrupt. The bank doesn't lose anything because all the bank does, the bank didn't give uh, this uh, vulture capitalist any real money. They created the money as a debit entry in their books and transferred that debit to the vulture capitalist. So when the vulture capitalist walks away, the company goes bankrupt. All the bank does is just crosses it off on their ledger. They don't actually lose any money in doing that because they've created the money originally out of thin air, and now they're just xing out the the, the account on the ledger. That's yeah, it's just the a ma- it's a magician's trick using mathematics and people right. not looking at reality. And it, yeah, right. Okay. Now here's the another other- here's another example of, of how they do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're probably reading now of stock buybacks, mm-hmm. where uh, a corporation. Uh, instead of issuing new stock, it will actually buy stock on the open market, uh, incorporate that stock into their own ledgers, uh, and that will drive up the stock price and they'll also drive up executive compensation. We're seeing this happening all the time now. But Mm. where do they get the money to buy their stock back? They borrow it from a bank and pay it off the increased profits of their company. This was so it doesn't it doesn't mean that there's more demand 
for their product. It means that they're just, no. it's not like they're doing anything good. They're just buying their own, their own stock to raise yeah. the value of the stock and then giving themselves bonus for a good job that then pays off the, the loans that they took out to buy up their exactly. stock. Right. And, and guess, who's do, guess who's doing this? Companies like Lockheed Martin, uh, the big defense company, it's actually owned by hedge funds. So the, so the billions of dollars that Congress votes for weapons for Ukraine goes to companies like Lockheed Martin, which they use for stock buybacks to drive up investor profits and executive compensation. They claim they're going to hire a lot of new employees and that this is going to be a boost for the American economy. It's all a lie. It's all done for stock buybacks and executive compensation. So this is just part of the, you know, part of the scam. Mm -hmm. All right. On this note, let's do this. Let's let's go for a commercial break. And then I'm going to scratch. You just said some big things. I want to pull on some threads here because these are huge right. problems. And I'm curious yeah, to see yeah. what are your thoughts? What what would you uh, advise? A like, let's say we actually had a government in office that right. was represented by real human beings that didn't want to go along with the death cult and uh, and actually do yeah. something about this immense right. issue. I'm going to let yeah. that question just float out there and hang over uh, people's imaginations for a few minutes while, or a few seconds while right. we listen to some commercials on TNT News Talk. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. Americans this week celebrated President's Day. Or did we? The answer, of course, is that we did not. We celebrated George Washington's birthday. And possibly, if you want to include Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president, whose birthday, February 12th, was given up for Martin Luther King Day back in the 1980s. But we definitely did not celebrate Millard Fillmore and James Buchanan. We didn't celebrate Jimmy Carter or Bill Clinton. And we most definitely did not celebrate Barack Obama and Stumblebum Joe. Why does this matter? Am I just being picky and pedantic? No, it matters because words matter. George Orwell wrote, the slovenliness of our language makes it easier for us to have foolish thoughts. Put more colorfully, blurry words carry deplorable thinking the way that mosquitoes carry malaria. You should always question the dominant narrative, whether it's that standard time going into daylight savings time is an artifact from our agrarian past when in actuality farmers argued against it when the progressives put it in 110 years ago that the Republican Party and the Democrat Party flipped after the 1960s, when that's demonstrably false. And even that red is the Republican color and blue is the Democrat color, when again, the opposite is true. In fact, the opposite is always true, what the dominant narrative seems to be. So question the words or else you've lost the argument before it's even begun. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for today's News Talk, TNT. The challenges our planet's animals are facing sometimes feel a bit heavy. Uh, animals haven't eaten in a day, two days, they haven't drank anything, they're cold, they're dehydrated. As soon as we started our descent, everywhere I could see was mud, just absolutely mud. You know, the country has been in long for droughts so long, it was like a tinderbox waiting to go up. Okay, very heavy. Each of us wants to be part of the solution, and we can be. Remember that there's good happening right now. At home. All right, we were able to get into the unit, and we have all four of your cats. So, uh... Okay. And around the world. For any animal in any disaster. 
So let's focus on that, right? Be part of the solution, one rescue at a time. Search ifa.org forward slash disaster ready. This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, we're back with the third segment of the third hour with Richard Cook, author of Our Country, Then and Now, A 400-Year Journey Through America's History and the President of American Geopolitical Institute. Richard, before the break, you were just going through, you basically broke the spell. You showed us very quickly, succinctly, how the game is played how nations are stripped of their ability to actually have any claim to real sovereignty and protect their people. Um, what would you say? Let's say we're able to get um, some some human leadership again. Um, like a let's say let's say met the the mega groups are able to to get their act together um, and have influence on a federal level. What should a competent government? And I'm speaking also governments maybe in Canada, maybe in in Europe, actual real governments. Let's say we can get that. Um, what could they do faced with these vulture funds that have been using shell companies that have been using all sorts of these techniques and tricks to, um, to financialize our economy and destroy the real economy? What, what, what sort of policies are available to us? What sort of precedents are available to us? Um, could I real quickly just say something about the American Geopolitical Institute? Oh, please do. We'll get to that. Back when I started writing on these things in 2007, after I retired from the U.S. government, uh, published a book, uh, We Hold These Truths, The Hope of Monetary Reform, lots of articles. Uh, But people would say to me, you need an institutional presence uh, in order to get the credibility and the platform you need. And uh, because otherwise, uh, I was just everything I wrote, I would be shopping to multiple websites and editors and stuff. So finally, the Veterans Today uh, group, uh, which had been reorganized and reestablished as VT Foreign Policy, came along and said, look, we will give you a web page and a presence and an archive capability and those other things that go with, you know, having a real institution. So anyway... We set out to try to do that uh, with them as our platform, and we're very grateful to them. So I'm putting together a stable of writers to support us in that, and that's basically basically it. We don't have a big fancy uh, building in downtown Washington to lobby from. We just have a few guys out in the out in the boonies. So anyway, uh, there have there, there's two ways to approach your question, uh, Matt, and it's a fabulous question. Number one, much of what has happened to create the travesties that we have today has been the result of deregulation that set in under the Reagan administration. 1980, the Reagan revolution was deregulating the economy and putting everything increasingly under the control of the banks. And that meant the Federal Reserve System. So one answer to the question is to reestablish the regulations that were stripped away. Uh, one is to outlaw uh, leverage buyouts. Another is to outlaw uh, stock buybacks, which had been outlawed. Uh, a third is to reestablish what is what, uh, the separation between deposit banking and investment banking. It's called the Glass-Steagall 
regulation that had been put in place under Roosevelt back mm-hmm. in the Depression. Many people are saying we have to reestablish Glass-Steagall, including Elizabeth Warren, when she was uh, trying to run for president a few years ago. So we have to put back in place regulations that had been stripped away to allow these travesties to occur. So that's one answer to the question. Uh, And the people who are in the regulatory agencies know exactly what I'm talking about and could do this tomorrow if Congress weren't completely bought out by financial donors. And so that's a whole nother issue is, is electoral reform to get money out of the electoral system. And that's one of the, one of the points in the, uh, the platform that we put together. The other is to create a new monetary system. And uh, people have known uh, uh, ever since the Federal Reserve came into being what it meant and what we should have instead of it. And that is to restore governmental control, which is public control, we the people control, a constitutional control over the monetary system. We know how to do that. Lincoln did it uh, using the tools that he had available in his day, which was for the government to spend money directly into circulation by payment of government obligations for things like infrastructure, uh, railroad systems, telegraph systems, soldier pay, salaries of government employees, all of that can be paid directly into circulation uh, by issuance of money by the Treasury. And in fact, there's a whole new movement now uh, by a, uh, I, I don't have her name at my fingertips, but uh, out of Harvard, who's putting together a monetary movement called direct payment, where the government re- covers the authority to make direct payments instead of having to go through Uh, the Federal Reserve, because the Federal Reserve is the fiscal agent for the U.S. government. And that's why anything that the federal government does of a financial nature has to go through the Federal Reserve system. And it shouldn't have to do that. Uh, What we used to have before the Federal Reserve was called the independent treasury. And I I explained that in my book. So we need to create a new monetary authority that has the authority to A, directly spend money into circulation for government requirements. Uh, The second thing is to control the lending apparatus where we take control of of the banking system and we either have public banks, such as the Public Banking Institute advocates for, and I've worked with them, I've spoken at their meetings, uh, or- Is that the Ellen Brown, that's the Ellen Brown? Ellen Brown's Brown's group. Right. Yeah. Public Banking Institute. Uh, and she cites the Bank of North Dakota as the model for that. Yeah. Uh, and there are a lot of places now in the United States that, thanks to their work, are beginning to at least take a look at creating uh, public banks. And uh, the other thing is control of usury. Uh, uh, why would the United States have a system? where if you're overdue on your credit card, you're paying 27% interest. It's criminal. It's been recognized as criminal by every responsible authority since the Old Testament was written. And there's no difference between then and now. It it blows my mind because people uh, are so quick to uh, freak out about like China social credit scores, blah, blah, blah. And yet here we are 
living under the most virulent form of social credit that you could ever imagine where people you you screw up on a on a on a credit card payment you had a bet a, a bad turn all of a sudden you get in bad debt and you're you're punished for life you can't buy a car buy a house you can't you can't live right. it's going to follow you forever and there's no way out of it it seems so yeah no it just to reemphasize some and indignation. If you foreclosed on your house uh, a person may have paid two hundred thousand dollars uh, for their house and one bad turn of luck and they lose the whole asset to the bank mm. i mean this is this is criminal and these practices have to be stopped and the only way they can be stopped is by in in the united states or whatever the same you know whatever the governing authority is in other countries uh, takes the authority back because the federal reserve exists only and I, I say only through an act of Congress. An act of Congress can be rescinded. It can be changed. It could be done tomorrow uh, by the appropriate congressional legislation. And the knowledge is there. I mean, I worked for years uh, with Steve Zarlinga, who was the head of the American Monetary Institute uh, mm. when I was at Treasury. Uh, I helped Steve uh, draft what we call the American Monetary Act, and you can Google that and uh, find out exactly what it says. Uh, the American Monetary Act uh, was adopted by Dennis Kucinich when he was in Congress, and he created from that what he called the NEED Act, the National Education right. uh, and Employment Defense Act, which would put in place uh, a modern uh, government-operated monetary authority uh, that would set up uh, under today's conditions what Lincoln created during the Civil War with the greenback system. And that's that authority is there. It, it's on the books of Congress. Uh, any of our listeners can look it up, and it's in my book, uh, in the appendix. There's a whole section there about uh, how this act came about and a number of the resources uh, that uh, are available to learn more about it. But uh, I'm also going to be doing a presentation for the Green Party on April 3rd. Uh, now, the Green Party actually has the NEED Act as part of their national platform. Uh, it's the only political party that has adopted monetary reform. And so I'm going to be on a panel with a group of several other people to explain that. Uh, but it's right there. It's available. People can look it up. And I say in there in my presentation, people say, well, what do, we, what do I do? Well, the number one thing to do is to get educated, you know, about all of the things that we're talking about right now. Yeah. And it's through people like you, Matt, and, and the other people that we work with uh, that we can try to spread this message that the knowledge exists, the ability exists to do all these things. What we need is the political will, and then it can be done. No, that's that's well said, and and sure enough, uh, action without knowledge will cause a big mess. Every time that people try to like move without fully understanding what they're moving on or what the the topography is, they become instruments of their own destruction. And so, yeah, it's very good advice: do knowledge, mind work, and then put it into action accordingly. Uh, lift yeah. small and then lift bigger as you build those metaphysical muscles. That's good advice. One of the points yeah. that I often encounter. 
Oh, sorry. Yeah, if you want to throw throw back uh, at me something on that point, and then they come back and say, "Well, what can I do personally?" My answer is get out of debt and stay out of debt. Ben Franklin said, "Neither a borrower nor a lender be," and that's the best advice, particularly for young people, uh, that anybody could could give. Build your own house. My my son uh, Tim has built three houses. Uh, because he got the know-how and the will and did it. And so he doesn't, uh, isn't saddled with uh, uh, tremendous debt. Uh, people can do these things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's very important to keep that both sort of bottom-up and top-down approach to life uh, alive yeah. at the same time, because people are often very either-or. You know, like I can either think, you know, you said all these big things about restoring government, breaking down the Black Rock, Wall Street, you know, right. oligarchical death cult complex and take back our nation. It's like, but we can't do that. That's so big. It's so corrupt. All I can do is think small. So I'll do that. Or people say inversely, no, no, don't think small. That's a waste of time. You got to think big. And it's like, wait a minute. Why is this either or thing there? Like, shouldn't we both take care of ourselves and develop aptitudes personally to build things and know how to you know do things competently while at the same time not losing this top-down um battle or our, our relationship to that no we can do both so i really appreciate your <laughs> your walking in in both worlds and, and tuning people's minds to know how to do that as well here's a question i have for you though on the issue of um of a lot of the issues of national banking, breaking up the banks, getting rid of the the destruction caused by neoliberalism, the you know the whole von Hayek, Friedman, Milton Friedman deregulation of everything, worship money thing that that created globalization and all this destruction for fifty plus years. A lot of people will say, I, I agree with you. That's why I believe in a Green New Deal to uh, to create. A centralized banking in order to build windmills everywhere and um you know we can see how this plays into what right. prince or king charles and klaus schwab also want with the great reset um right. ultimately just creating a lot of scarcity with with fake infrastructure how do you how do you help people who like like this but they they're weak on the issue of like well what sort of infrastructure do you now build that isn't going to play into the mass depopulation agenda, which some people would like, right. who would like versions of the New Deal or versions of Hamiltonian banking, but with this green depopulation spin. Right. That's a good question. Um, and it's only five minutes long before we end the show. I'm so sorry. Yeah, this yeah. is a big question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just to be very, very brief about it. Uh, back when the American Monetary Institute was, was in its prime, uh, they were doing... Uh, in, in touch with the American Society of, of, of Mechanical Engineers on what the infrastructure deficit was just to bring mm -hmm. the U.S. infrastructure up to a reasonable standard. Fix the bridges, fix the roads, fix the highways. Like fix five the, trillion or something, right? Yeah, it was like a, a deficit of uh, several trillion dollars. Well, yeah. let's start with there. Let's start with fixing what we have. Let's start with fixing our schools. Let's start with salaries for our teachers. Uh, and then from when we've done that, we'll get into the bigger issues that can really only be decided at the political level through yes. a political process that includes real science, 
uh, real participation by all affected groups and then see where that leads us. But there's such a deficit today in what needs to be done uh, just to take care of what we have. I would put some money into supporting uh, organic farming and gardening, for example. Mm. I think that, uh, our government totally is in favor of agribusiness and saturating the land with herbicides and pesticides and selling degraded products to uh, uh, to foreign countries where we put their farmers out of business. I mean, look at NAFTA, uh, for heaven's sake. Let, let's take care of our own agricultural requirements uh, at home with family farming and create a healthy, safe environment there. I mean, that's a big mm -hmm. need that we have. So there's a lot of things that we could talk about. Uh, yeah, I like that approach. I love so, that approach. It's just like, yeah, like our, let's deal with the fact that we have structurally dangerous bridges that are on the verge of collapsing and 80 year old pipes transporting our water. This is we can all agree that's dangerous. <laughs> let's put let's start working on that. And maybe in five, 10 years when we like resolve these like vital existential crises caused by neglect of our infrastructure, we'll revisit this question on what ideology will be animating the the overarching yeah. emission of credit and, and green new greenbacks and what have you good good yeah. approach yeah. very good approach i lived in a town not too long ago where, where they they told me uh, i was doing some work and well our sewers are made of cardboard uh it's going to cost uh millions of dollars to replace it well okay there that's a good place to put your money yeah, you know, and you're going to build, obviously, if you do it, you're going to discover pretty quickly. We don't have any any competency to process the concrete and, and make whatever type of equipment and machine tools are needed yeah. to build that infrastructure, right. make that fix. So that that's going to create a demand for all of a sudden a, a native, like an actual yeah. American company to be rebuilt, yeah. people right. to be trained to do the job. Yeah, yeah it makes makes sense. We've given all that, we've given all that away. We've thrown, we've thrown it all away for uh, for the big money guys and and that's got to be turned around mm -hmm. well do you think that the military industrial complex could also be maybe retooled to build infrastructure instead of building bombs it seems like that's yeah, like the, one of the really. last residues where we have some industrial capacity um maybe that could be done yeah absolutely yep and that or would also that mean get yeah right eh? yeah i mean they, you know they, they said that uh, world war ii was was like an engineer's war and that the the type of it was before the military industrial sort of the the, the revolution in military affairs when yeah. you were training soldiers to build a bridge as well as if need be destroy a bridge but today it's like we lost that idea of the 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 engineer um force uh and yeah. the citizen army like that's that's gone yeah. last minute how would you like to uh to end out the last thought for as a parting idea for for viewers <laughs> uh be confident be confident in yourself uh, and your ability to adapt, to learn, uh, to get control of your own resources, and just just go forward with uh, joy in your heart. Words of wisdom from Richard Cook. Pick up his book, Our Country, Then and Now on Amazon, 400-Year Journey Through America's History. And uh, be sure to follow American Geopolitical Institute on Veterans VT foreign policy. So thank you so much, Richard, for sharing this and looking forward to more conversations in the future. Yeah, thank you, man. Really appreciate it. All right. Stay tuned for 
TNT's Connecting the Dots next week where we join you again with more fun guests. Take care. <laughs>